0: You're listening to the free, abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar tone. Wind turbines.
1: We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This
0: boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather
1: pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into, uh, related to the exhaustion of these resources,
0: there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For March 17th, 2021, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. This is part two of our three hour interview with Dr. Simon Evans of Carbon Brief, a UK based climate and energy think tank, in which we reviewed months of research that he and a colleague did to try to understand the present and future potential for hydrogen. In part one, which ran as episode 142 of this show, we discussed the current expectations for the hydrogen economy, the various projections for hydrogen production and use, the different methods of producing hydrogen and the names we use to refer to them, the state of the global hydrogen business today, the potential role that hydrogen might play in tackling climate change, and the questions around what hydrogen costs today and may cost in the future. In the second part of the interview, we'll talk about the various potential applications of hydrogen, sector by sector, and use by use, and attempt to start sorting out where hydrogen might really have an edge, and where it might just be a potential application that might never become a commercial reality. But we're not stopping there. In a future episode, after a suitably long break from the topic, we're going to get out a very sharp pencil with another hydrogen analyst and really dig into the details of its various applications and its competitive landscape, so stay tuned for that. Then in the news segment of this episode, we'll take a look at a new record for all electric ferry boats, we'll consider the implications of a new study on the Atlantic Ocean circulation, we'll note the restoration of federal social cost of carbon accounting, we'll applaud the overturning of Trump's last stand on behalf of coal, and we'll update the long-running story about corruption and bribery in Illinois on behalf of the state's largest utility. And now, the second half of our interview with Dr. Simon Evans of Carbon Brief. Well, okay, so I want to return to the transport question because, as you mentioned a moment ago, there are additional costs involved in moving the hydrogen from wherever it's produced to wherever it can be used. So what are those costs like?
1: Right, so one of the kind of nice ideas, one of the appeals of of a hydrogen economy is you basically can make cheap hydrogen in really sunny or windy regions of the world, and you can send it to your kind of energy-poor nations – But actually, that's a really nice idea, but it may end up not being that cheap, simply because of the high cost of transporting hydrogen over long distances. So we talked to some analysts that know a lot about this kind of stuff, just to try and bottom it out in our own understanding. And just using the UK as an example, what they told us is that you can end up in a situation where the transport costs are of a similar order of magnitude to the cost of actually making the hydrogen in the first place. Hmm. So... You know it might cost you like three dollars a kilo to make green hydrogen in the uk and it might be like one dollar a kilo or two dollars in like saudi arabia or portugal or something just because their solar resource is so much better right so your cost is way lower but the transport costs could be as high as like three or four dollars a kilo and so you end up even though it's expensive in the uk to make it domestically it's still cheaper to do that than to get the cheap hydrogen imported hmm um, I think that's all true, but nevertheless, there are going to be countries that would probably need to import hydrogen if they want to use a lot of it. And that's basically similar reasons to why we have energy importers and exporters today. You know, your Japan's, your are Germany's, um, they're both relatively energy poor. And even in the hydrogen world, they're going to probably be importers because they don't have unlimited renewable resources and they don't have a lot of domestic gas. And in the same way that we currently have regional versus international trade in gas via pipelines or ships, we're likely to see that with hydrogen as well, if we're going to have a global trade. So, you know, like the IEA thinks that hydrogen via pipeline would make sense up to around 1,500 kilometres. So like, I guess, within Europe, but for longer distances, it's probably more economic to convert it either just to liquefy it or to turn it into a liquid carrier like ammonia. So you basically turn your hydrogen into ammonia, send the ammonia in a ship, and then you get the ammonia where you want it and you turn it back into hydrogen. And despite the additional costs of kind of conversion, reconversion, the shipping is cheaper because you don't need the kind of cryogenic super cold temperatures to liquefy ammonia, which you do for hydrogen.
0: Right. I mean, just achieving those temperatures requires a lot of energy in itself, right? So it's these energy Mm -hmm. inputs involved in doing the conversions that are... Potentially problematic here, or at least that add costs. I mean, this is something that we discussed in our energy basics mini series again, which is that every time you convert energy from one form to another, you lose some of it, and ultimately that increases its cost. So, as a general rule, it's cheaper to use hydrogen that is produced close to where it's used because long-distance transport will require more energy to do things like cool it and pressurize it and liquefy it, and then transport it and then warm it and then regasify it. Every one of those steps, you're losing a little bit of energy, which is one of the reasons why I'm particularly skeptical of ideas like, for example, turning Chile into a major hydrogen exporter to the world. So this brings us to another point, the effect that this new commodity will have on global trade and money flows and trade balances and so on. So how is hydrogen expected to affect global geopolitics?
1: Yeah, exactly. So Hydrogen at the moment is very localised, so 85% of current production is used on-site and that's largely down to transport costs. And because most of the hydrogen we use at the moment is grey, that means it's cheapest in regions with low gas prices, such as like the Middle East or North America. But if we see a big expansion of green hydrogen, say, that could shift the existing balance of trade so that... Nations rich in solar and winds You mentioned Chile, but it's one of the places people talk about. Australia, Morocco, they could become major exporters of hydrogen. And, you know, just to push back a little bit, obviously you're completely right. Each of those steps, you're incurring efficiency losses. And the hydrogen economy is very inefficient compared to like direct electrification, for example. And that's definitely an argument against its widespread adoption. But on the other hand, you know, you think about fossil fuel use, it's terribly inefficient. The kind of well to wheel efficiency of like gasoline is absolutely appalling. And yet we still do it. That's how we drive around everywhere. And so it comes down to the economics. So if the economics stack up, despite being massively inefficient, it's still going to happen. So it's just going to be how those things balance out. Anyway, coming back to this like geopolitics thing. So the argument goes, Chile, Australia, wherever, they're going to become exporters and then say like European nations, perhaps they don't have the space or the resources to have sufficiently cheap renewables. So we might end up being importers of green hydrogen. And you can actually see that idea featuring in a bunch of existing hydrogen strategies where some countries see only like a fraction of their hydrogen supply being produced locally so the German strategy, they've specifically earmarked quite a lot of money to support the use of German electrolyzer equipment overseas. And the idea is that they make hydrogen to be sent back home for use domestically. And you know, I kind of mentioned this, but it is interesting that it's not just a climate play, I guess you would say. It's definitely also industrial strategy because they've got technology companies, Siemens or whoever, and they already make electrolyzers. And so You know, there's clearly an element of seeing hydrogen as a way to kind of boost exports of that technology globally. Mm -hmm. Where we are today, we don't really have an international trade in hydrogen, but there have been some very limited trades. So Japan recently took what they called like a world first shipment of hydrogen from Brunei. And Germany signed a deal with Morocco to use what they call ideal conditions for green hydrogen and to import that into Germany. And then you had like ministers from Japan and Australia met in 2019 to agree on a future of hydrogen trade. And that would basically see Australia making lots of green hydrogen and sending it to Japan. And since that meeting, the Australian government backed what would, you know, if it happened would be pretty ginormous, like a 26 gigawatt, $39 billion Asian renewable energy hub which would make hydrogen to send overseas. Wow. So people are talking about big numbers here. Yeah. Now, obviously the future of any potential hydrogen trade internationally, or whether it's like hydrogen dry fuels like ammonia, that will be influenced by the cost of the transport around the world. And we'll need to see like international shipping routes being developed, whether that's like retrofitting gas pipelines, um, gas import terminals, you know, I understand it's maybe possible to reuse some parts of existing gas import terminals, but, you know, like the storage tanks, probably not suitable. Pipelines, again, like in the UK, we're already in the process of retrofitting our iron gas pipes with plastic. So that's kind of an accident of history. And that means that our gas network would be more suitable for hydrogen But a lot of places, that isn't the case. Mm. So the idea of kind of repurposing gas pipelines, it's not actually as simple as it sounds. That's an interesting element. I hadn't thought about that before. Yeah. So one of the hopes, let's say we develop this international trade in hydrogen. One of the hopes could be that you kind of create a safer world. That sounds nice, doesn't it? But you basically avoid geopolitical tensions around oil exports, which, as we know, is a major flashpoint. But actually, even that's not a slam dunk because there's no guarantee that a kind of global hydrogen trade would be any more safe and stable than current fossil fuel markets. And actually, you might see it play out in quite a similar way. You could have your current fossil fuel exporters like your Saudi Arabia's, for example, they could decide to become major exporters of hydrogen too.
0: Yeah, exactly. And this is an interesting element of all this is, again, there's these sort of hypey sort of claims about the potential to make a safer world or to reduce geopolitical tensions. But I think as we're going to discuss in a bit, not necessarily so. So you conclude your article by looking at how hydrogen might be useful to help decarbonize various uses of fossil fuels sector by sector. So let's take a look at those, starting with road transport. What can hydrogen do for us here?
1: Right. So when people think about hydrogen for energy, Usually the first thing that pops into their head is going to be like a fuel cell car. Actually, this comes out in strange ways. When we were getting towards publishing our article on hydrogen, we've got a colleague who takes care of kind of publishing and search optimization and all that kind of stuff. And she was like, guys, can you like put fuel cell cars in the title or like the first lines? And we're (laughs) like, "Nah." (laughs) That's <laughs> no, not going to happen. <laughs> anyway, genuinely, that you know, obviously, that's the thing people tend to think about. That's right. And we already talked about the fact that this focus on hydrogen as an alternative to fossil fuels in transport specifically, that's got a history dating back to the very earliest waves of enthusiasm for hydrogen. And actually, even earlier, when it was promoted as an alternative to oil. Yeah. And you can actually see that in terms of the policies that are currently in place to support hydrogen and historically, those have predominantly been directed at cars or like refuelling stations or buses. What's quite interesting is despite the fact that there are those policies in place, actually mobility is like the smallest component of the hydrogen market today. And it's I find this quite surprising. It's less than 0.1% of global hydrogen demand. Hmm. And despite that, there's still enthusiasm from some industry actors for hydrogen to succeed in transport. And it actually is quite significant in some niche markets. So apparently, you know, again, something I didn't know, apparently there's around 25,000 forklifts around the world that are powered by hydrogen. Coming back to what I said right at the beginning of this, what we're looking at, hydrogen has to compete not only with fossil fuel vehicles in terms of decarbonisation, but it also has to compete with other low carbon alternatives. When we wrote our article, we kind of hedged it, which is, I guess, a carbon brief Style, But honestly, I would say it's really tough to see hydrogen making major inroads in light-duty road transport, like cars and vans, just because of the success of battery electric vehicles.
0: Yeah, and actually that's a sector that I've been working in for the past five years, and I fully concur with that. There's still some hope for medium or particularly heavy-duty vehicles, but I think in light-duty that game has been won by EVs.
1: Yeah, to be honest, like, why did it take this long? I mean, I remember... I was at university reading New Scientist. I don't know if you get that yeah. in the States. It's a bit like Scientific American for right. those that don't know one or the other. Um, you know, I remember reading about hydrogen and electric vehicles at the time and thinking, like, clearly battery is going to make more sense, you know, just <laughs> right. largely because of the efficiency. Anyway, I digress. So as of 2019, there were like 11,000 passenger vehicles around the world, running on hydrogen fuel cells. So that's like nothing, right? Right. And most of those are in California, Europe, and Japan.
0: Where they received very strong policy support.
1: Right. And despite very strong policy support, it's still only 11,000. Right. And as a comparison, the battery electric car fleet exceeded 7 million and... I've written last year, I can't remember if that was last year 2020 or last year 2019. I think that was 2019. We've we've entered the COVID vortex in terms of time. But (laughs) anyway, it's 7 million and the first million was just five years ago. So it's it's growing at a ridiculous pace. I think it went up 43% last year, electric car sales Mm -hmm. globally. Mm -hmm. I saw a headline recently. Anyway, so that game, as you said, is kind of over. Now, it used to be the case for battery electric vehicles as well, but one of the limiting factors for the fuel cell vehicle industry has been kind of a chicken and egg problem. So there's not enough vehicles produced to bring down prices, and that means then there's not much demand, and that means you don't build a lot of refueling stations because those are expensive investments, and that in turn means If you're a potential buyer, you're like, well, how am I going to refuel? So that limits demand and you get this like vicious cycle. So fuel cell vehicles are really expensive and we just kind of looked up numbers in the UK. I'm sure it's kind of similar in other markets. So you can buy like a typical petrol car for like 20 or 30,000 pounds, like a conventional fossil fueled vehicle. Then if you want a Tesla model three you know, I think many people see that as like a premium product. That's like 45,000 pounds. And if you want a Toyota Mirai fuel cell car, that's like 70,000 pounds. Mm -hmm. So that's a big problem for the fuel cell vehicle industry.
0: And even after you've spent the 70,000 pounds, good luck finding a place to refuel it.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a fueling station out by Heathrow Airport, I'm not aware of any others but i'm sure there are some (laughs) yeah so the hydrogen council did a report looking at this and they basically said what we need is like a radical increase in production and once we get up to like a million fuel cell cars each year then maybe those cars might be competitive on a cost basis but frankly if you look at the strategies of car makers around the world i just can't see that happening anytime soon yeah Meanwhile, electric cars, they were very expensive during the early days of people talking about fuel cell vehicles. But since then, costs have dropped dramatically. There's extensive electric vehicle charging infrastructure now. It's a common sight, again, just in the UK, but I'm sure in other countries too. So yeah, that's just another way in which that game's kind of over. And just like fundamentally, hydrogen fuel cells have some very vocal detractors, So famously, Elon Musk calls them full cells. (laughs) And he says the technology is mind-bogglingly stupid. And although there have been attempts to get fuel cell vehicles into the mass market, it's again, it's just pretty clear they're really losing badly in most segments of road transport. Now, you mentioned maybe heavy-duty trucks, buses, etc. So BNEF suggested that hydrogen could still have a role for long-haul trucks. But despite that, they said, like, the bulk of bus and light truck stuff is going to be electric. And if you wanted to kind of promote a fuel cell vehicle industry, you would have to massively subsidize it, basically. Yeah. So part of the reason for all of this is the conversion losses that we've talked about. You know, there's just a lot more steps of energy conversion between generating hydrogen and delivering power to the wheels compared to doing that with like a battery electric vehicle. And as a result, it's like two and a half or three times as much electricity as an input at the start of the chain that you would need to run a fuel cell vehicle on renewable hydrogen compared to what you would need to run a vehicle on a battery. Just directly electrify it and you cut out a lot of those steps. And if you want to make synthetic electrofuels from renewable hydrogen, that's even more steps intermediate and that's like five times as much electricity input as the battery electric vehicle. So it's a no-brainer, really. Yeah, exactly.
0: In episode 110 with Mark Lewis, we discussed basically the energetic losses of petroleum-driven vehicles versus vehicles that ran on wind and solar for electric vehicles, and he steps through the math of all the energy conversions along the way and realizes that the energy losses are so much greater on the ice side, on the internal combustion engine side, that basically the story is already written. You know, It's just a matter of letting it play out. And the same thing is true here. If you're going to take electricity produced by a wind turbine or a solar module and You're going to put that onto the grid, and it's going to get transported to some distribution grid, and then it's going to get delivered to a customer, and then it's going to drive a charging station, and then it's going to get put into an electric vehicle, and then eventually it's going to drive the wheels. You're going to have some energy losses along the way with all those different steps, but ultimately you're going to have two and a half times as much energy loss by taking the hydrogen pathway just because of all those different conversions that you have to go through from quote unquote wells to wheels. So now we have a number of vehicle manufacturers that have been investing in producing hydrogen fuel cell vehicles for many years now. Starting to throw in the towel on them. I mean, just recently, Scania, a $20 billion Swedish manufacturer of heavy-duty trucks and buses, including hydrogen fuel cell vehicles, said that the technology's future is quote-unquote limited and that it expects its all-electric vehicles to gradually overtake its fossil and biofuel-powered solutions in most transport applications, even for heavy-duty vehicles.
1: Yeah, that's right. And last year, Mercedes-Benz, they're another early proponent of hydrogen. They cancelled their fuel cell program after three decades due to high costs. Volkswagen, they published a statement recently saying, "Quotes: everything speaks in favor of the battery and practically nothing speaks in favor of hydrogen. Yeah, It's not totally over for fuel cell vehicles because you've got Japan expecting to get 800,000 of them. That's their target for 2030. South Korea, on the same time scales at targeting 1.8 million and Japanese and Korean car makers Toyota and Hyundai have got ambitious plans for scaling up production so Toyota obviously we mentioned the Mirai they've recently launched the new version of that i actually didn't know this but Mirai is the Japanese word for future <laughs> they've launched that new version despite the fact that they've hardly sold any of the previous model hmm. But as you say, there are some signs, even those that have previously kind of strongly promoted fuel cell vehicles are kind of maybe easing off a bit on fuel cells and revealing plans like to ramp up production of battery electric vehicles because they can't miss out on where the market's going. So Toyota, it does now have big plans to scale up battery electrics and hybrid cars. Some people have taken that as a sign that they're moving away from fuel cells. We actually talked to Toyota UK about all of this you can take what you will from this. But what they said is, yeah, sure, we are pushing electric vehicles, but ultimately we see fuel cell cars being, quotes, as attainable as hybrids. (laughs) I'm not sure what that means. Maybe you can interpret it for me.
0: (laughs) Well, I mean, I don't know. By the time you get there, I don't think we're going to be using hybrids much anymore either. So yeah, that's what it would mean to me.
1: Yeah, I mean, (laughs) their strategy is quite curious. Like, I didn't realize until we spoke to them, like, toyota mirai has a massively oversized fuel cell which sounds nuts right i mean it's expensive right but their argument was no no this makes sense we're going to use the exact same fuel cell in a car versus in a truck or like a van because we're just using the same one it's like economies of scale or something again Mm. just doesn't really make sense Mm. anyway you know if you look at buses this was seen as a potential big market for hydrogen fuel cells But the picture's really shifted. You know, in London, there's a small fleet of hydrogen fuel buses. It's been around for years and years. Um, I remember, like, maybe even 15, 20 years. But actually, now electric buses are dominating the transition in that sector as well. Hmm. According to Carbon Tracker and the think tank, about three-fifths of bus sales in China are now electric. You know, three-fifths of total sales, not just of low-carbon ones. So those trends, like, they're a really big problem if you're trying to sell fuel cell vehicles because they really really need volume to get economies of sale and bring down their costs but if electric cars have the mass market sewn up it becomes really difficult to get those economies of scale just by selling heavy-duty vehicles and that in turn makes it hard to get the costs down for those hydrogen buses hydrogen trucks and that makes it harder for them to compete Mm -hmm. you know another key problem is the question of actually how much low-carbon hydrogen are we going to have available? So according to the IEA, if every car, truck and bus currently in operation was replaced with a fuel cell vehicle running on hydrogen, then hydrogen demand just from that surface transport could reach 300 million tonnes each year, which is like four times current hydrogen demand for all uses. Hmm. And just to remind you, that was to produce that level of hydrogen you're doing four times the electricity supply of the US or the EU. So it's a lot. You know, on the other hand, we shouldn't completely write off hydrogen for transport because like long haul shipping, that's unlikely to switch to batteries. Maybe green hydrogen or hydrogen derived ammonia may be one of the only ways to decarbonise ships. So I guess you could say we're back to that champagne scenario, if you like, where we need to see hydrogen as a premium product. Maybe it's not going to take over the mass market. But it's still hitting an important spot that you know other booze, if you like, just can't reach.
0: <laughs> I feel the same way about single malt scotch. You know, <laughs> that's an interesting point. And I do wonder about that. I mean, long haul shipping is one of the most devilishly difficult sectors to decarbonize. And part of it is this reason. You need to have really a vast amount of fuel, and that fuel has to be dense to take an ocean-going shipping vehicle across the world between China and the U.S. or whatever. These ships take a lot of power. And One of the reasons why we use bunker fuel right now, which is the fuel of choice for international shipping like that, is because it's super cheap. It's a very undesirable product. It's the very bottom of the barrel after you refine a barrel of crude. Bunker fuel is a solid at room temperature. (laughs) It's basically (laughs) asphalt. You have to keep it heated inside the engine room to be able to actually get it to flow through pipes and even get to the engine. And then when you burn it, it's filthy. It produces tons of sulfur and PM 2.5 emissions and all sorts of nasty stuff. So what we're really proposing here is we're going to take this it's not even Blue Nun wine. I mean, it's the very worst, lowest quality wine you could imagine. And we're (laughs) going to replace it with champagne (laughs) in order to decarbonize with hydrogen. Might work, might not substantially increase the price of goods so shipped and be deemed acceptable from a cost standpoint, but I'm not so sure. So let's talk about that a little more. I mean, what is the potential for hydrogen in shipping and aviation?
1: Right, so aviation and shipping together, they're responsible for about 5% of global emissions. And they're obviously really difficult to electrify. doesn't matter how many exciting articles you read about electric planes or whatever, electric ferries, they're really tough to do in other ways. So that they're definitely examples of where hydrogen or hydrogen-based fuels could be crucial. We might just run out of other options. So, you know, over the past year, Japan's launched an ocean-going liquid hydrogen carrier. We've also seen, like relatively recently, the first hydrogen-powered small passenger plane take flight. And Airbus last year published blueprints for concept planes running on hydrogen, I think, by 2035 or something like that. Hmm. But obviously, at the moment, those are all just kind of demonstration projects or even ideas just on paper. Right. And that's basically like the upper limit of progress for hydrogen in shipping and aviation. So there's really a long way to go if we're going to see them deliver significant decarbonisation. But if you look at the International Maritime Organization it has a target of a sector-wide 50% emissions cut by 2050. And if you're going to do that, like ships last a long time, they're on a kind of long capital replacement cycle. So you'd need to see commercially viable zero emission ships entering the global fleet by like 2030, say. So you really, really need progress like pronto. So there are various early stage projects using hydrogen-based fuels and shipping. Having said that, the industry is kind of a bit stuck, according to the reports we looked at. And the basic problem is that ships are big and expensive, and one of the challenges with hydrogen is you actually need to link up action, like this chicken-egg thing. And in this case, it's not only in terms of making new kinds of ship, but also you have to put in place the supply chain for the low-carbon hydrogen or the hydrogen dry fuels that the ship's going to run on. And if you don't get that coordination right, then the whole thing gets kind of worse than the status quo in terms of CO2 emissions if you have to use like grey hydrogen or whatever. Yeah. So, one of the reports we looked at said basically the industry hasn't decided which route to go down in terms of the technology the fuel you know so let's say you, you could directly combust hydrogen in your ship engine or you could have a fuel cell to run the ship, but those are kind of choices that require different types of investment, different types of infrastructure investment, and different kits on board in terms of storing and powering the ship and you know another issue is hydrogen. Is not energy dense in a volume sense. And so if you're going to use hydrogen as your fuel, you need five times more storage volume compared to your bunker fuel. And that obviously reduces the amount of space you have available for cargo. And not only is your fuel more expensive, but you also cut your profits by not carrying as much stuff. So we talked to Maersk, which is the world's largest container shipping firm, and they said that hydrogen could have uses in smaller vessels like ferries, but they don't really expect hydrogen to be relevant for their container ships. And instead, what they think is that it would be more sensible to convert it into either methanol or ammonia and use that as a fuel instead. That is much more energy dense in volume terms. It's liquid closer to room temperature and pressure, and So there's big advantages there. Right. So ammonia takes up more space than fossil fuels, but it's way more energy dense in volume terms than hydrogen. And it's already transported around the world on ships. So, you know, we kind of know the technology is there to do that. And methanol similarly is being considered as a more practical alternative Mm -hmm. to hydrogen. And because it's much easier to store like ammonia or methanol, that means it's cheaper. And you don't have to get those cryogenic temperatures to liquefy it. Right. So basically, there's a few options around hydrogen based shipping and the potentials that it's a big sector if that's gonna be completely hydrogenized, if you like. But if we're going to do that in a kind of twenty fifty timescale, we're gonna need some really hefty policy interventions to get things going. I mean, you know, that could be mandates for ships to cut their emissions. Currently doesn't look particularly likely. Or it could be carbon pricing, you know, like low carbon fuel standards or some combination of all those.
0: Yeah, that makes sense to me. And, you know, if I had to put money on it right now and I was going to choose decarbonization fuel of choice for ocean-going shipping over bunker fuel. I would choose ammonia or methanol for all the reasons that you just stated. That does seem like a, a possible avenue for me. But then let's talk about aviation because, again, you know, next to ocean-going shipping, that is one of the hardest things to imagine how we're going to decarbonize. And for the very same reasons, right? You need to have a lot of energy in a dense fuel, which liquid fuels like kerosene, which is basically what jet fuel is, do brilliantly. So which of these energy carriers are likely to be the decarbonization pathway of choice for aviation? We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are generally at least an hour long. In addition to two full new episodes each month, subscribers can also view interactive transcripts of our interviews and explore our extensive show notes with links to all of the research resources and news items for each episode. Our subscription podcast works in all podcast apps and players, including iTunes, and is downloadable. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. There are several ways to become a subscriber. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year, or $5 a month. Monthly subscriptions are just $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer half-priced annual subscriptions for universities. Students can purchase individual subscriptions, or professors can purchase bulk subscriptions for their classes. Numerous educators now use the Energy Transition Show as coursework, and their testimonials are available on request. And finally, we offer site licenses with group discounts on annual subscriptions for all members of institutions, such as corporations, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free, hormone-free, organic, handcrafted, artisanal podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. And for something a little different, today we're going to focus on news items that update stories we've covered previously on the show. Item 1. It's been over a year since we talked about the electrification of ferry boats. That was in the news of Episode 111. But we can't pass up this new milestone. On March 1st, the world's largest battery electric ferry began regular service on Norway's busiest ferry route between Moss and Horton. At 143 meters or 469 feet in length, the MF Bosto electric ferry can carry 200 cars or 24 trucks plus 600 passengers on 20 trips a day. The vessel's battery capacity is 4.3 megawatt-hours and is recharged at the rate of about 7.2 megawatts. That's about enough power to run seven tall office buildings, with the peak output capacity of 9 megawatts. The MF Basto electric launch comes six years after Norway launched the world's first all-electric ferry, the MF Ampere, in 2015, and has about four times the battery capacity of its predecessor. Worldwide, there are now some 331 ships and vessels equipped with batteries for either electric or hybrid operation, with another 180 vessels on order. Just over 200 of them are sailing or will be used in Norway. Item 2. According to researchers from Ireland, Germany, and the UK, the Atlantic Ocean circulation is the weakest it has been in at least 1,600 years. The so-called conveyor belt moves warm water from the tropics up toward the North Atlantic... Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com, and follow us on Twitter at transitionshow. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.